0: Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This devotional address, entitled Reconciliation, was given on July 7th of 1998 by Robert Blair, then a BYU professor of linguistics. Reconciliation is not an uncommon word. We hear it used in reference to reconciling one's bank account. We hear it used in reference to a husband and wife who, after going their separate ways, come back together as one becoming reconciled. The basic meaning of reconciliation is resolving differences and returning to peace and harmony. Until we make good on our resolves, our covenants, pledges, and promises, we're out of balance, not reconciled. Substituting self-interest values for true, eternal values, we only deceive ourselves. There was once a king whose wife died, leaving him an only daughter. The king's name was Midas. His daughter was sweet and loving and Midas loved her very much. In his treasure chamber, Midas kept tons of gold, gold dust, gold bars, gold coins, gold platters, gold goblets, gold statues, even gold cooking pots. Every day he would go down into his treasure chamber, locking the door behind him. And there he would play with his riches, gloating in the power and influence he thought these would bring him. For hours he would sit on the floor and count his money. He would toss it into the air and laugh as it rained gold on his head. He would wallow in the gold dust. He would dance on it. Except for my daughter, my little marigold. It is gold that is my treasure. Marigold's beauty like that of a flower will fade. Only gold is forever beautiful. How I love to touch it. If I can only get enough gold, I'll be happy forever. One day as he was gloating over his treasure, he suddenly became aware there was someone standing beside him. It was an immortal visitor come down from heaven. Midas, you have a lot of gold, I see. Oh, it's not so much. Really, it's only a little. You're not satisfied then? No, I want more, much more. How much more would it take to satisfy you? Oh, I wish I could create gold by the touch of my hand. Are you sure that such power, with such power, you would then be satisfied? Of course nothing else in the world would bring me such happiness and are you sure you would never regret it if everything you touched with your hand turned to gold never the temptation would not be more than you could handle believe me i could handle it then it shall be as you wish from tomorrow at sunrise whatever your hand touches it will turn immediately to gold The next morning, Midas began to experiment with his marvelous new power. Just as the immortal visitor had promised, everything he touched turned to gold. He took a walk in his flower garden, touching the flowers one by one to test his magic gift. Sure enough, no sooner did he touch a flower than it turned to gold. Isn't that marvelous, he laughed. He danced about, touching one flower after another. He would have turned all the flowers into gold, but seeing it was time for breakfast, he returned to his room. Just then his servant brought in his breakfast. The king reached out to take a piece of fruit, putting it into his mouth. He found it too had turned to gold. He almost broke his teeth trying to bite into it. He took a cup of tea, but before he could bring it to his lips, the cup and the tea turned to gold. The thought struck him. If I can't eat or drink, I'll soon starve to death. But looking at the fruit and the cup of tea, he only shook his head and marveled at their shining beauty. Just then, a little marigold came running in, laughing joyously. Looking at her, the king thought, She is as radiant as the sun. He reached out his arms to take her. But as he touched her hand, She instantly turned into a lifeless statue of gold. In a panic, Midas fell to his knees and cried out, No, no, oh, what have I done? In my lust for gold, I have destroyed my own daughter. Just then the immortal visitor appeared again before him. Midas, you're weeping. What has happened? Oh, immortal visitor, I am of all men most miserable. Is it that I did not keep the promise I made you? No, you granted me my wish. Whatever I touch turns to gold. You told me that power, that that power would bring you happiness. But now you tell me you're of all men most miserable. How can this be? Oh, I didn't realize how evil my selfish wish was. My lust for gold has robbed me forever of happiness. But Midas, is not gold the most beautiful thing in all the world? I detest the very sight of it. Tell me, is not gold the most valuable thing in all the world? Tell me wherein gold has its value. Well, surely it's more valuable than a cup of tea, is it not? No, a cup of tea is of more worth than all the gold I possess. Surely gold is more valuable than a piece of fruit, do you not agree? No, a piece of fruit is of more worth than all the gold I possess. Is gold not more valuable than a daughter's love? Oh, immortal stranger, you don't understand. I've come to see that the common things of life, our children, our friends, even the ordinary things we see and touch every day, these are our real treasures. Seeing that the king's sorrow was genuine, the immortal visitor took pity on him and said, Would you have me remove the power I gave you and let you restore your daughter's life? Oh, noble stranger, do this and I will give you all my gold. Then, Midas, go and wash your hands in the river and bring back a pail of water. With the water from the river, sprinkle whatever you have touched, and it will at once return to its normal state. Then use your gold to help your people. King Midas took a pail and ran to the river, washed his hands, and ran back to his palace with the pail of water. He splashed water on the gold statue of his daughter, and she was restored at once to life. Then he fell to his knees, took his daughter in his arms, and sobbed, Oh, Marigold, forgive me. God, forgive me. Among the scriptures that have profoundly moved me since I first read it in my youth is one given by the Lord to Joseph Smith in these words, lift up the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. Truly Joseph's life was characterized by extraordinary charity. Lifting up hands that hung down and strengthening feeble knees. William W. Phelps, a member of the First Presidency, and Joseph's intimate friend and confidant, left the church and became a traitor to the cause of Zion, an enemy who brought enormous injury, irreparable damage to the saints and to the church. Robbed of peace in the Lord, he wrote a letter to Joseph Smith, seeking reconciliation. Here's a part of Joseph's answer. We have suffered much in consequence of your behavior. The cup of gall, already full enough for mortals to drink, was indeed filled to overflowing when you turned against us. However the cup has been drunk, the will of our Father has been done, and we are yet alive, for which we thank the Lord. And having been delivered from the hands of wicked men by the mercy of our God, We say it is your privilege to to be delivered from the powers of the adversary, to be brought into the liberty of God's dear children, and again take your stand among the saints of the Most High, and by diligence, humility, and love unfeigned, commend yourself to our God and your God, and to the Church of Jesus Christ. Believing your confession to be real, and your repentance genuine, I shall be happy once again to give you the right hand of fellowship and rejoice over the returning prodigal. Reconciliation. How marvel it? marvelous its power. how sweet its blessing. On eve of his betrayal, Jesus tells his apostles, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. Peter says, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. Jesus answers prophetically, Peter, even this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter responds the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. As you know, that night Judas, the traitor, leads a mob to the Garden of Gethsemane to betray his master, who he knows is there with Peter, James, and John. Peter at first boldly resists the mob, but once Jesus is arrested, Peter and the others flee. As Jesus is led away, Peter follows at a safe distance. He does not enter the hall where Jesus is accused by false witnesses, buffeted by his accusers, and unjustly condemned to death. Peter is in a room below, warming himself by the fire, hoping not to be recognized as a follower of Jesus. A lady notices him and says, Thou also wast with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter denies it and goes out on the porch Hearing a cock's crow, Peter is no doubt stricken with shame, but summons new resolve. Another lady accuses him, You are one of the followers of Jesus. Peter's resolve melts. He denies again. Now several who have noticed his Galilean accent come over and accuse him. Surely thou art one of the followers of Jesus. Now Peter curses and swears by an oath. I do not know this, Jesus, at whom you speak. The cock's crow is heard a second time. Realization of what he has done sweeps over Peter, and he weeps. Was not abandoning his master, even denying him, equal to Judas' betrayal? No written records describe Peter's agony over the next days. Did he stand by, helpless as Jesus bore his cross through the streets to Calvary? Was he there as the Roman soldiers drove nails into his master's hands and feet? Peter's story continues after the resurrection, when the Lord appears to the apostles, and to Peter in particular, gives a sacred trust. Feed my sheep. Reconciliation, oh, my, blessed reconciliation. For me, the message of the prodigal son sank deep when my beloved Maya teacher, Manuel Tun, He told it to me in his own words. Allow me to retell it with adaptations as he gave it to me. A father had two sons, I'll call the younger, Johnny. Johnny's father is rich. He has hired hands who work in the fields. Johnny and his brother and father work hard alongside the hirelings. To each son, the father gives a Bible and a gold ring to symbolize fidelity to God and unity of faith in the family. Working and talking with his father and brother, Johnny feels contented. His eyes shine and there's a peaceful expression on his face. He's 12 years old, he's obedient, he's polite and respectful. Three years pass, he's 15 now and has new friends. These boys don't like to work, they only like to play. They tease him, Johnny, your father exploits you. And Johnny begins to believe them. Often he plays all night with them. And in the morning he's too tired to get up and work. He thinks, why should I work? I have my own life. Unkind feelings develop between Johnny and his father. Now Johnny no longer prays, he no longer reads the word of God, he doesn't like to spend time with his family, he only wants to play with his friends. He doesn't notice that the warm feeling that was in his heart has disappeared, together with the light that formerly shone in his eyes. One day his friends say to him, your father is rich, why should you work? Let your father's hirelings do the work. Go to your father and demand your inheritance. Then you can leave home and be your own boss, Johnny. And Johnny thinks, that's right. I'll leave. With my inheritance, I can live like a king. I don't need family. The decision made, he goes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now. Here's your ring, your symbol of family unity. It has no meaning for me anymore. I'm leaving. Your inheritance? You want it now? Johnny, have you thought this over thoroughly? I won't discuss it, Father. Just give me my money now. Johnny takes the money and leaves. He makes his way to a far city, feeling immensely rich and totally free. In the city he finds friends, and with them he squanders his inheritance, leading a debauched life. One day he wakes up to find that the money he thought would last forever is spent. And soon he finds that his friends are no friends at all. There's no one that cares for him. He is alone and frightened. There comes a famine and Johnny begins to suffer from hunger. I can see him standing on a street corner. A cold wind is blowing. He is clutching a tattered blanket around him. He is hungry, but more than that, he is ashamed. People look on him with pity for the misery he has brought on himself, and children mock him for his wretchedness. I note the painful expression on his face as he shouts out, You make fun of me, but my father is richer than you all. Don't you know who I am? But no one pays any attention, no one helps. Now he has no home, no family, no dignity. He has thrown away everything. In his desperation, he thinks of sending a letter to his father, asking for money. He thinks money can solve his problem. One day a neighbor acquaintance traveling abroad sees him in this sad state. So, Johnny, this is where you are. I see you're in dire straits. Before setting out, I told your father I was coming here. He said, Oh, please, if you happen to see my Johnny, tell him I still love him and want him to come home. What? Does my father speak of me? Does he speak of you, you ask? Every day he speaks of you. His heart aches for you, Johnny. Tell my father, I'm okay, I'll manage. Truly, Johnny is in desperate straits. He begs a citizen, Help me, sir, I am hungry. Give me something to eat. The man gives him work. He sends him into his fields to feed swine. Emaciated and weak, Johnny eats pig fodder swill. Becoming sick and with no one there to attend to his desperate need, he cries out in agony, Oh God, what have I done? God help me return to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called thy son. Make me only as one of thy hired servants. Now Johnny gets up and sets out for home. I can imagine him walking along dusty roads, climbing hills, descending into valleys, passing through fields and wilderness, he is aching within. Sweat mixed with tears streams down his face, but his every step is quickened by hope. Johnny is a short distance from home, his father is standing on a hill, from where he can see the road. Every day he stands there, hoping to see if by chance his lost son is coming up the road. And today, as always, the father is there, hoping and praying. Suddenly he sees the figure of a young man coming up the road. His heart jumps. He doesn't recognize him from his clothes. They are tattered and dirty. He is limping. His hair is long and disheveled. But the father recognizes his son and his heart fills with compassion. Johnny has come home. He runs joyously to meet his son. He throws himself on his neck and kisses him. Johnny, you've come back. But the son says, Father, I have sinned against God. Yes, I know. I have sinned before you, Father. Yes, my son, I know. Oh, I am so ashamed, Father. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Johnny, my son, my son, how terribly you must have suffered. The father calls to his servants, bring clean clothes and dress my son, put shoes on his feet, put this ring back on his finger, come let us celebrate, for this my son was lost but now is found, this my son was dead but has returned to life. There's more to the parable, but I'll leave it there, adding only a quote from a talk by Elder Bruce R. Porter in General Conference of 1995. Like the errant son, we all have come to a far-off country, separated from our premortal home. Like the prodigal, we share a divine inheritance. But by our sins we squander a portion thereof and experience a mighty famine of spirit. Like him, we learn through painful experience that worldly pleasures and pursuits are of no more worth than the husks of corn that swine eat. We yearn to be reconciled with our Father and return to his home. Another story of the marvel of reconciliation begins in Canaan. Joseph, Jacob's eleventh son, is destined to become a great prophet. And his preparation for that begins early in life, when he finds it difficult to get along with his 10 older brothers. One night, 17-year-old, Joseph has a prophetic dream. In it, he sees a symbolic representation of his brothers bowing down before him. Joseph tells his dream to his brothers. They're infuriated. They vow to punish him. Soon after, Joseph's 10 older brothers take their father's flocks to distant fields to feed. Sent by his father to find them, Joseph sets out on a journey of no return. His brothers see him coming, and Simeon, the meanest of them, says, Here comes the dreamer of dreams. Let's slay him. We'll see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben, the eldest, says, Let not our hands shed his blood. Let's strip him and cast him into a pit here in the wilderness. Then we will be rid of him. They grab him, strip him, and throw him into a deep pit, intending to leave him there to die. Joseph has no doubts about their murderous intentions. When they sit down to eat at the top of the pit, he cries out in anguish. But so intense is their hatred that their hearts are unmoved by his desperate cries. As they're about to abandon him, they see a camel caravan passing nearby. The fourth brother judah says what profit is it if we leave our brother to die in the pit let not our hand be, be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh let us sell him so they haul the bruised and shaken lad out of the pit and sell him to the caravan merchants for a few pieces of silver i can see their dark faces as joseph stands the last time among his brothers His eyes move searchingly from face to face as he appeals to them. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. But there's no softening, no mercy. Their faces are resolute, their hearts untouched. They are rid of Joseph forever, or so they think. Little do they realize that this vicious crime against their younger brother will fester in their hearts and rob them of peace. The terrible deed done, the brothers kill a sheep and spatter its blood on Joseph's coat to take to their father as evidence of his death. Then they take oath, never to even speak of their crime again. You know what follows. Joseph is sold as a slave to Egypt, becomes a servant of Potiphar, then is falsely accused and sent to the dungeon where he is doomed to spend many years. In prison, Joseph's prophetic powers are made known when he interprets the strange dreams of two fellow prisoners. Later, the great pharaoh has troubling dreams that no one can interpret. Learning that a Hebrew prisoner in the dungeon has interpreted dreams. He commands that the prisoner be brought to him. Pharaoh reveals his dreams to Joseph, and God gives Joseph the interpretation thereof. There shall come seven years of abundant harvest in all the land of Egypt. Then will come seven years of drought that will consume the land. Pharaoh sets Joseph as Lord over all the land of Egypt. According to your word shall my people be ruled, he says, only I will be greater than you. For seven years, Egypt is blessed with abundant harvests. Grain is stored up against the coming drought. In the eighth year, the drought begins, and its suffocating grip begins to be felt in all the land of Egypt. Joseph has storage bins opened up and grain is dispensed to the people. Not only in Egypt is the drought suffocating, in the land of Canaan to the north it brings severe hardship. Jacob calls his sons to him and says, there is grain in Egypt. Go down and buy grain and bring it here so that we may live and not die. Joseph's 10 older brothers go with their donkeys to Egypt to bring grain. Only Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, is not allowed to go. Picture in your minds the sight of the brothers leading their donkeys into the hot, dusty square in Egypt. Joseph is there and recognizes his brothers. But they fail to recognize him. He gives orders to have them brought to him privately. Coming before his face, the brothers bow down to him with their faces to the ground, not realizing they're fulfilling part of Joseph's prophetic dream some 40 years before. Joseph puts the unsuspecting brothers through a series of trials. To begin with, after having them confined in a room for three days, figuratively cast into a pit. He has them brought before him. Through an interpreter, he commands, go, take grain to your families. But until you bring your youngest brother, who you say stayed with his father in Canaan, one of you remains here as hostage. Thinking that this great man cannot understand Hebrew, the brothers break their vow of silence. It is because of our sin against Joseph that God has brought this punishment upon us. When he called out to us from the pit, we saw the anguish of his soul, but would not listen. Now his blood will be required of us. Hearing this, Joseph hurriedly leaves the room to hide his weeping. Returning to Canaan, they are sustained for a time with the grain brought from Egypt. But when the grain is nearly consumed, Jacob calls his sons to him and says, you must go again to Egypt and buy grain lest we perish. Judah, his spokesman, he says, we cannot go without our brother Benjamin. He must go or we cannot go. For the great man of Egypt said he would not see us again if we did not bring our brother. At last Jacob consents and sends young Benjamin. As they enter the dusty square, Joseph sees them and sees Benjamin is with them. He commands his servants, Bring these men to my house. Release their brother locked in confinement and make ready a feast for us all. The startled brothers are ushered to Joseph's own mansion. Simeon is brought out to them and they are told that the governor invites them to feast with them. When Joseph comes in at lunchtime, his brothers again bow down before him and present him with gifts sent from their father. And Joseph inquires about their father's health and is told that Benjamin is indeed the young son. And Joseph is brought to tears. after the feast Joseph sends them with their donkeys laden with grain but instructs his servants to secretly put a silver cup, Joseph's own silver cup in the sack of the youngest brother then after they leave he sends guards after them and instructs them to Accused them of having stolen his uh, silver cup. They discover the silver cup, of course, in Benjamin's sack. And despite all the pleading of innocence, there's nothing that they can say. They are. Uh, Judah, the spokesman, explains that they are without excuse, that they will all be slaves of Joseph in Egypt, and Joseph says, no, only the youngest in whose sack the silver cup was found will remain with me as my slave. Desperate Judah speaks. When we returned to our father, we said we cannot go back to Egypt without our brother. Our father said, If you take my last son also from me, you will bring my gray hairs with sorrow down to the grave. Before setting out on our way here, I said to my father, If I do not bring your brother back to you, then shall I personally bear the blame forever. O oh, great one, I beg thee, let me stay in his stead as a slave to my Lord. And let him return to his father. Joseph can hold back no longer. Let everyone leave. I will speak alone with these men. All go out, even the interpreter, leaving Joseph alone with his brothers. Now Joseph stands up from his chair before his brothers to speak, but his words will not come out. His voice bursts forth in weeping. Finally, he gains control over his emotions and addresses his brothers in Hebrew. Do you not know who I am? There's a long pause as the brothers look at each other in wonder. I am Joseph. I am your brother. Now their eyes are opened, the older brothers are stabbed again with consciousness of their terrible crime against their brother. They know they stand convicted before him, who now has the power of life and death over them. Surely he will return evil for evil. Heads bowed, they wait for his terrible condemnation. Joseph speaks softly. Let your hearts be at ease. God sent me to Egypt, and made me ruler in all the land, so that I might save your lives. Now make haste, go to our father and tell him, Thy son Joseph lives. He is Lord of all Egypt. Then all of you come here with your father and your children, with our father and your children, and your children's children, in Egypt I will nourish you and you will be saved. Joseph embraces each of his brothers and they leave and Joseph becomes their savior in Egypt. I'll conclude with a story I read years ago that has helped me see how my words can change someone's life. It was written by a woman about herself when she was a child just entering first grade. I don't know the author's name or where her story was published, but I remember the title. Seven Words That Changed My Life. I'll tell it as I remember it. Excruciatingly shy, her face disfigured by a cleft palate, and her hearing severely impaired in one ear, Alice lived in self-destructive misery. An invalid in a cocoon of her own making, She had closed herself off from the outside world, feeling unloved and not wanting anyone to see her ugly face or detect her disability. Fearing the inevitable stares and cruel taunts of other children, she panicked at the thought of attending school. How could she hide her ugliness and her deafness? Somehow she was made to go to go to school that first day. Left early with the teacher. Before the other children came, Alice took a seat at the back of the class and hid her face from the others as they came in. After the class began, the teacher announced that they would first have a simple hearing test. One by one, the children were were to come to the door and stand waiting until the classroom was absolutely quiet. Holding a hand tightly over one ear and then the other, They were to listen as the teacher whispered something to them. The simple test was to repeat back the teacher's words. Alice sat almost in tears. Not only would everyone see her ugly face, but they would find out she was deaf in one ear. She sat with lips quivering as each of the other children passed the test. Now it was her turn to be seen and tested. Hiding her face in her hands, she walked to the front. Trembling, she turned her face to the wall and covered her good ear, but left enough opening so she could hear the whispered words. Then her teacher spoke seven soft words. Words that broke open the floodgates of tears and changed Alice's life forever. I wish you were my little girl. Reconciliation is a gift that we can and must give to others. It's a gift that we can and must receive from others. Ultimately, it's a gift we can receive from our Father in Heaven, even being reconciled with Him, through the atonement of Jesus Christ. The Savior said, If thou desirest to come unto me, and rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, go unto thy brother, and first be reconciled to him. Then come unto me with full purpose of heart, and I will receive you. Reconciliation with God, through the atonement of Jesus Christ, is at the core of the gospel. Reconciliation with each other through words of kindness, through caring service, is also at the core of the gospel. May we be reconciled unto Christ, unto God through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And may we be reconciled to one another as we give and receive the gift of reconciliation. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches.